Hello and welcome to another episode of The Gold Podcast. My name is Boaz Shoshan. I'm an editor at South Bank Research, and I'm joined today by Alistair McLeod, who is the head of research at Gold Money. For those listening, if you listen to our previous episodes, you'll be familiar with John Butler, who is also also works with uh, with Gold Money. Uh, now, Alistair, as head of research, has uh, he, he writes quite quite frequently for Gold Money on a, on a very large variety of topics within the gold space and the macroeconomic space and uh, we brought him on today and uh, we'll have we'll have a, a, a very very broad discussion on on a lot of major themes like credit cycles macroeconomics keynesianism uh, that kind of thing alistair thank you very much for joining me that's my pleasure Burs. right so to start off with alistair where in, ter- in terms of sort of where we are today in 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 the macroeconomic world and how uh, we're in this world of fiat money, uh, in a world of uh, Keynesian policy. Where did this all? Where did this all start? And where did it all go wrong? There has been a tendency for a considerable amount of time for the state to interfere in the underlying economy. Um, in fact, free markets have barely existed at all throughout history. When they have surfaced, if you like, as a dominant force, they have been incredibly successful. And recently, I would point to places like Hong Kong, for example, right. where a deliberate hands-off policy by uh, the administration following World War Two led to the development of the most successful um, single nation, if you like, or community uh, that we have seen in a hell of a long time. And bear in mind that this was out of the ashes of the Japanese occupation when the Japanese military currency became completely worthless, there were absolutely no resources um, available uh, to the population. And not only that, but on the mainland, there was a huge great refugee problem because of the civil war uh, between uh, Chiang Kai-shek and uh, Mao Zedong. So, um, you know, they started from um, literally zero and in a very short time have become very, very significant. Successful. Now, if you contrast that with a, uh, a country which uh, has predominantly been run on a state, uh, um, state basis, if you like, right. uh, look at um, countries which started off at the same time, almost um, going into communism. You could look at um, uh, the components of the old Yugoslavia. I mean, I do remember going to Croatia um, some time ago, and they were just beginning to embrace some sort of socialistic capitalism, I suppose. And you look at that country and you see how far behind it got uh, during the same time when uh, Hong Kong emerged as one of the wealthiest uh, nation states in the world. So that's the basic background to it. That's the empirical evidence. Um, The Going back to your your basic uh, question about um, uh, the, how the you know the state interference is in effect it's a, it's when does the state interfere? Right. right. Um, uh, we had of course uh, in the West um, uh, a period of relatively free markets, and this was really in the time of the British Empire. It um, uh, followed the introduction of sound money and the removal of trade tariffs uh, by uh, Robert Peel, who was the prime minister in the 1860s. Um, And Britain became the most wealthy nation um, that the planet had ever known. Uh, A small nation uh, basically uh, had trade influences over the whole globe. I mean, it really was quite, quite extraordinary. Uh, So um, that tended to end basically 
after the First World War, because we had the rise of Marxist communism. Um, but even before then, uh, Germany tried to move over to um, a situation where the state controlled its money. Uh, and um, it needed to do that effectively to finance uh, the arms buildup, uh, which led to the First World War. Yeah. Uh, and, um, of course, uh, as we all know, if you go along to your electorate and say, we want to wage war against someone, it's going to cost some money. So we're going to raise some taxes. Vote for us. That cuts no ice whatsoever. No. So all wars are financed basically by printing money. The Napoleonic Wars were exactly the same for, for, for Britain. Um, but chartalism, which was the theory of the original state theory of money, which was proposed by a chap called George Knapp back in um, around about 1905, I think he wrote his, his definitive book, um, really was what led to the disintegration of uh, uh, the mark um, post-war, because the war failed. Uh, the hope was that uh, Germany would recover uh, assets, if you like, uh, to back its own currency right. following its success in World War One, That success didn't materialize. Uh, and the currency, as a result, uh, collapsed by 1923 into absolute nothingness. And, of course, we all know about that. We've yes, read about yeah. it. Um, and there are all sorts of legendary stories. But the reality is that it was the debasement of the currency that uh, created the problem. And that was Knapp's. Um, uh, yeah, how, how exactly did Knapp uh, cause that with the mark? Well, he caused that basically by, um, uh, I mean, he didn't cause it directly. It of was course, caused course. by the government. But the government bought into his theory that uh, the currency is actually a matter for the state and not a matter for the people. Right. Uh, that was the fundamental uh, uh, distinction, if you like, between the gold standard, which is which was you and me demanding that our money actually be backed by something um, or even better, actually be gold uh, or verifiable gold substitutes, that this substitute actually is 100 percent backed by gold. That, if you like, is, the, is in its purest form. Yeah. Um, moving from that into something where there's absolutely no backing at all uh, and um, uh, the state has total control over, over money. It insists that the taxes are paid in the money it creates and so on and so forth. Now, that, of course, is exactly the situation we have today. Yes. And, and uh, the, 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 the common theme uh, behind the inflation of money explains why it is that out of the 60 or 65 recorded hyperinflations throughout history, uh, virtually all of them uh, have been in modern times, uh, because uh, before then, uh, you couldn't really sort of kid the public that uh, the bits of paper that you were issuing uh, um, you know, had any, any real intrinsic value to them. Uh, and of course, nowadays, uh, we have forgotten this lesson completely. And many currencies collapse. I mean, we've got the Zimbabwe dollar, we're seeing this in Venezuela, we're currently seeing um, oh, yeah, sort of currencies being undermined, if you like. Um, yes, I mean, the, 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 the uh, Turkish lira and, and, and of course, the, the uh, Iranian real. We're seeing these currencies being undermined. Um, and uh, this, you know, I mean, people think it's a currency war between the dollar and these countries sort of provoked by wow. tariffs. Actually, it's the countries themselves that have issued these currencies that are responsible for their demise. So um, getting back to the main theme, yeah, do tell me if I'm rabbiting on too much. No, 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 not at all. Getting back to your basic theme, uh, the development of the theory of the state 
uh, running the economy, um, needed to take a giant step forward. It needed the justification. And in order to do that, we had to move away from cl what we might call classical economics, uh, the economics of um, uh, monetarism, the economics of Adam Smith, David Ricardo, and so on and so forth. And um, the person who did that most effectively was John Maynard Keynes. And he did that by publishing a book called The General Theory of Employment, Interest and Money. And central to this was uh, the demolition. Um, I put that in inverted commas because it wasn't that at all. It was, a, it was actually a, a, a confidence trick in a sense. Demolition of something called Say's Law. Now, what Say's Law basically says is that in order to consume, in order to buy something, you've got to make something else. It is the way the division of labor works. And if you look at the economy as a whole, everything we buy has to come out of everything that we produce. And um, we can, of course, import things. Um, uh, and uh, we do that particularly with raw materials. But if we import them, we have to pay for them. So the money effectively has to be a sound unit of account. What Keynes uh, tried to do was he tried to rubbish that by redefining it in such a way that it didn't really make very much sense. And, uh, and then to use money as a means of cor corrupting the process. In other words, if you've got, um, uh, you know, people are producing things and they're not maybe producing them to uh, the, the satisfaction of the state, then what you can do is you can create extra money to create the illusion of production uh, uh, for the satisfaction of the state. And that basically has been the background to uh, the whole of Keynes's uh, general theory on employment, interest and money. And he has used this as a means, if you like, of getting the state into interposing in the economy and having a positive role in the economy itself. But as we all know, or we all should know, that if you interpose the state, then they require, uh, in order to, to do whatever they do, either by collecting taxes or by borrowing, or uh, the third alternative, which is the one which very few people really understand, by corrupting, by debasing the money. In other words, printing extra money out of thin air. Right, right. And, and, and that is, is, is really the basis on which governments today intervene in the state. Now, we can then draw, if, if we understand this properly, we can then draw a very simple conclusion. And that is that, um, you know, far from being uh, proof of some sort of economic perpetual emotion, government actually is a cost. The cost is either visible, in which case it's taxes, yes. or it's invisible or only partly visible in that uh, um, uh, they finance themselves by printing money. And it's the printing money, the debasement, which is the problem, because what that does is it transfers wealth from uh, uh, one party to another. And predominantly, it transfers wealth from savers towards borrowers. Right. And the justification in government terms is that if you make it cheaper to borrow money, then it's going to benefit producers. Um, but... Uh, and here, here is the rub. Um, savers are the, the normal way in which producers access capital in order to evolve their production. Um, the problem that we now have is that we're destroying the savers. So uh, you've then got a situation where the, the uh, state has to rely more and more and more on printing money 
as a means of keeping the illusion going because the wealth that's being stolen from the savers obviously diminishes their ability to provide the capital which industry needs in order to evolve its products. So um, we have, we're now getting to a situation where all these chickens are coming home to roost. So if we go back and look at George Knapp's idea that, uh, you know, it's the production of money, then we have an awful lot of money has been produced. Now, the other side of that money, because most of the money that is produced is, is not actually produced by the central bank, but is actually produced by the banks in the form of expanding bank credit. You're referring to M2 money, broad money. Broad money, correct. M2 in America, M3 over here. I, th I think we still call it M3 here. Right. Um, that broad expansion of bank credit is the principal engine nowadays whereby the banking system benefits from the creation of money, benefits its chosen borrowers, but at the same time disadvantages anyone who saves for them. So, um, but the way bank credit is created is um, you walk into your bank and let us assume that you have got a project that the bank is willing to to to, to uh, lend you money for, then um, uh, they will literally just credit your account with uh, either a facility or the total money that you need to spend from day one. Usually right. it's a facility. Now, as you draw down on that facility, you do so to pay your suppliers and whatever it might be. And what they do is they take that money and they credit it to their bank accounts. So what has happened is that just by literally creating the loan for you, Money, as you draw that down, is created in order to uh, to become the deposits of someone else, and yeah. that gets recycled through the banking system. I mean, if a depositor uh, is with the same bank as your bank, then uh, you know one just cancels out the other uh, in terms of balancing the books. If, on the other hand, that is not the case, then there are other depositors who will deposit money in the bank. So that can be cancelled out against the extra loan. Um, if, on the other hand, uh, people tend not to deposit money back in the bank, then they just go into the wholesale money markets and borrow it from another bank. So you can see that the whole system works on the basis of the expansion and contraction of bank credit. Yes. Now, contraction is a nasty word in this sense, because um, there is likely to come a point where you have a cycle of credit expansion, whereby that cycle begins or tends to go into reverse. Now, under those circumstances, what happens is that the banks find that they have effectively got a run upon them and they rapidly become insolvent. Could you, could you, uh, could you expand on that a bit? So you have with, the, with credit cycles, you have the sort of trend of an expansion of, of credit where loads and loads of people uh, take out loans to, uh, to do whatever, whatever it is they, they are doing, if that be that in the real economy or in financial markets, that, they are, that there is an expansion of credit uh, yeah. or the uh, sort of uh, banker's pen money uh, as, it's, as it's often thought of. And then so yes. this trends trends upwards, but then there reaches a point where the market is completely saturated in credit and there's a contraction of that where people are wanting to pay down de debt or the debt is simply defaulted upon because there is no more, uh, there is no more return that can be found in, in the economy. Is that correct? Uh, yes, that is correct. But it, it's uh, the important point. It starts by expanding the quantity of money in the economy. Yes. And... Um, uh, in doing so, inevitably, it begins to drive up prices because, uh, you know, you don't draw down on your credit not to spend it. You end up spending it. Uh, and we'll put the finance sector, you know, sort of 
recycling it into asset speculation to one side for the moment. But let's just look at the basic economy. So if I borrow money as a manufacturer to go and buy things, I'm bidding up against um, my competitors to buy those things to manufacture consumer products. Uh, and the result is that there is a shortage of those things that I need. Uh, so the price tends to rise. And um, so the effect, I'm being very simplistic here, but the effect of this expansion of credit in the economy is over a period of time to drive up prices. And as you drive up prices, then obviously uh, the purchasing power of the currency uh, diminishes. And as the purchasing power of the currency diminishes, then any saver is going to turn around and say, well, uh, you know, um, my money is going to buy less tomorrow than it does today. So I'm going to need some compensation for that. So in other words, he will expect uh, a higher rate of interest, if you like, uh, to uh, reflect with the fact that he no longer has immediate access to his money. It is he has lent it out to someone else. So. Um, this leads to a cycle developing, a credit cycle. So you expand the amount of credit. The prices tend to catch up with the original expansion. Interest rates have to rise. And then the business model, which I originally uh, took out on the basis, let us say, that a 5% return on uh, overall capital, most of which I borrowed uh, um, at a lower rate, uh, is, is, is going to be profitable to me as an entrepreneur. My business model has now changed because interest rates are now higher. I can't get my working capital at anything less than, let's say, 10%. Now, at that stage, uh, what do I do? Do I cut and run or do I sort of soldier on and hope for the best? What we tend to do as the process starts is to soldier on and hope for the best. So you end up with an awful lot of people ending up in the same boat as a result of the original credit expansion they end up running unprofitable businesses. Now, if your bank doesn't notice this uh, before you do, then one way or the other, I mean, you're going to turn around and have to say to yourself, well, look, I think we're going to have to take a decision here. And you take a decision and you start reducing your operations. You start trying to pay back the bank. The bank sees this um, because they're not stupid. They have uh, market intelligence and they think, hold on a minute. There are a number of our customers beginning, seem to be beginning to get into some sort of trouble. I think what we should do is we should restrict our lending, um, our new lending, uh, um, and we should uh, try and withdraw, if you like, from that market. Now, the reason we have to do this is we've lent out 10 times our capital. If we lose 10 percent, uh, um, uh, of our capital, uh, the equivalent of 10% of our, of, of our balance sheet uh, through loans to companies that are not working, our company is completely wiped out. We can't, we can't afford to do that. So we need to move quickly. Right. So you can see that uh, what happens is you get a cycle of credit expansion. It starts with um, the expansion. You get to a point where everybody's sort of ticking along quite nicely and you sort of think, oh, you know, things are better. But prices start rising and that inevitably leads to a credit contraction. That is the classic cycle. And this happened actually before central banks. It's happened ever since. Uh, sorry, before modern central banks. It's happened ever since um, uh, banks have been allowed to, to take customers' deposits and do what they want with them. And uh, that was really enshrined in the Bank Charter Act of 1844, about which there was an awful lot of debate beforehand. But uh, one thing it did permit was banks to take people's money 
and to use it as they saw fit. So and, this is uh, the uh, sort of the advent of fractional reserve banking. It is exactly that. And uh, fractional reserve is, is the term that basically, uh, 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 if you like, sets the relationship between the bank's capital and the degree to which it can expand its balance sheet, uh, literally by creating credit out of thin air. And this is what causes all, all, credit, all credit cycles then from that, from that point onwards. Exactly. Now we now we 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 have um, uh, the the advent, if you like, of the modern central bank. What the modern central bank does is it tries to prevent the crisis from happening, and um, in doing that, it has to rescue the banks. Yes. So uh, what you end up with is um, instead of the crisis being really terrible, you end up perhaps with less of a crisis because the mal investments, the bad investments. Uh, are not completely liquidated, but it takes a longer time for the situation to adjust and for the banks to get back their confidence to lend and all the rest of it. So that, you know, tends maybe to extend the cycle a bit. But then we go one further, and that is uh, where Keynes comes in. He says, well, actually what we need is we need government to intervene in the economy when uh, the economy itself the private sector, the free markets are not delivering uh, uh, the potential that the economy truly has. So, uh, if you, you know, let, putting it in the in, in the context of the credit cycle, at the start of the credit cycle, the government should intervene in order to encourage uh, industries to uh, invest in their production and to produce things uh, that people want, and people should be encouraged not to save but to consume. Because if you save, that's deferred consumption. Why not bring that forward and have the benefit of uh, uh, immediate consumption uh, to help get the economy recover? And originally, he was sort of thinking that, uh, you know, the, the, the process is one which, um, you know, could be reversed by uh, the collection of taxes from the success of the policy at a later stage in, in the business cycle. And note, this is something which, which um, uh, uh, is, I think, actually very important. Economists describe what I call the credit cycle as a business cycle. That's rather like saying that um, uh, measles is, um, is spots all over your body. It's not. It's the symptom. The right. business cycle is the symptom a of the credit, of credit cycle. cycles. Yeah. And uh, it, 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 there's something really deliberate about this, because if you say it's a business cycle, then the implication is that it is the fault of the private sector and the economy as a whole, rather than of the of the of the not of the no, money no, 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 not not of the economy as a whole, because as a whole, we're also talking about government's involvement in the economy. Mm. It is purely the responsibility of an inadequate private sector that creates the business cycle. Now, if you accept that, then then uh, you can see that there is a role for uh, a central bank to try and improve on the uh, mistakes and the errors um, and the inefficiencies and the wrongdoings, if you like, of, of uh, the entrepreneurial class and businessmen and so on and so forth. And um, uh, but if you call it a credit cycle, then there is no doubt as to who is actually responsible for this. And this is why I insist on calling it a credit cycle, because it helps us understand actually what's going on. So to go over so, that, the, uh, in calling it in naming it a business cycle, it gives the uh, it, it implies that it is business that is at fault when it when it when, it, you know, when there is a downturn. 
Um, but in, in name, and so, you know, as a result, business, the uh, sort of the private sector, the business sector that has a cycle should be uh, managed by a central bank. Whereas in a, yes. if, it, if it were a credit cycle, it would be, uh, you know, the blame would be fully at the feet of the, uh, of, of, the, of the creators of credit, so the banks. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's not just the banks, um, because as central bank, central banking has evolved, the state involvement, the state managing its currency as has it just were, increased, then they have stimulated um, uh, uh, the banks into um, uh, making the, the cycle even even uh, more more violent, if you like, um, stimulate the banks into lending by creating money. And most recently, we've seen this with the uh, widespread abuse of quantitative easing, which basically is the buying of assets, very often assets with um, uh, at, at inflated prices off the banks uh, in return for raw cash. Um, and that is how the Fed indeed has built up its balance sheet. That's why um, there are at the moment just under $2 trillion worth of bank reserves. These reserves being the property, the deposits, if you like, of commercial banks on the central bank's balance sheet. Uh, and that compares with the pre-Lehman crisis uh, level of bank reserves, which averaged just slightly less than $10 billion. We've gone from $10 billion to $2 trillion. That is the amount of underlying money that has been created at the beginning of this cycle. So um, on top of that, now that what that does is it gives the banks extra capital, which allows them to lend even more. Now, um, there are complications, which I think uh, probably slightly beyond the scope of an initial uh, um, discussion about this, right. uh, about the current cycle, because the current cycle has just got sort of so out of control. There's so many distortions and all the rest Everywhere, of it. Yes. Um, this, this is, it, it's something which I think is actually a series of lectures rather than, than you know, a half hour or 40 minutes of yeah, uh, a discussion, uh, yes. podcast chat. Um, but... Going back to the basic cycle, um, towards the end of the cycle, the central banks now have uh, this duty imposed upon them and accepted readily by them, uh, whereby uh, they will rescue the banks from uh, any uh, business cycle crisis. We know it's a credit cycle crisis. And uh, they do that how? They do that basically by producing more money, by lending money to the banks or buying things off them at inflated prices in order to restore their balance sheets. And at the same time, they will say to the commercial banks, please, for goodness sake, don't foreclose unnecessarily on your customers or your clients, because, um, you know, that's just going to make things worse. So what happens is that from every cycle, every credit cycle, the previous credit cycle never unwinds. So you get an accumulation of distortions, credit distortions, which eventually... Uh, is bound to end in a huge great crisis, which um, uh, you know nobody can really be rescued from. Right, right. So in doing in doing this, they are effectively rewarding failure at every at every downturn, uh, to the point where uh, it becomes becomes somewhat unsustainable overall. Now, before bef before we go to the to the to sort of the finale, the uh, the 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 credit crisis yet yeah, you think well the downturn of the of the overall credit cycle that you think is on the way there was something I wanted to uh, to go back to somewhat Alistair with um it was very interesting with the idea of John Knapp the the adoption of his academic theories uh, by 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 government and le leading to uh, leading to chaos um, and the sort sort of how the government is looking for a looking for a means 
uh, to to exert its power in, in the economy. Um, there is an interesting parallel then with uh, Keynes uh, and, he, and his academic theories. Then have now been have now just become uh, you know gospel in in some ways uh, throughout the established uh, economic order throughout academia. Uh, and, and throughout throughout government, it's very interesting how it, uh, the, this sort of parallel where government adopts a academic theory uh, in order to, to uh, accomplish its aims, um, in a and, and you know it, it leads to all sorts of um, crazy consequences further down the line. Um, in one of your uh, one of your recent articles, said in order to give a role to the state, Keynes had to get away from human action and devise a positive management role for central planners. Uh, so, to in order to in order to put the government inside, uh, right straight inside uh, the economy. But going back to Say's law, the thing that um, uh, that which which Keynes misinter- misinterpreted possibly deliberately. Um, the it, it's interesting this idea of. Uh, that by creating supply, you then create demand, which seems to be the uh, sort of the implication of, of Keynes's interpretation of it. Could you could you go into that? Uh, yeah. Um, it, well, <laughs> I mean, Keynes Keynes basically um, uh, denied that Say's law was valid, and it's it is interesting because I've, I this is a topic I've um, spoken. Uh, with Keynesians about, and uh, I've had very, very senior economists uh, end up by saying, I do not believe in Keynes' law. I reject it completely. Now, the use of the word belief, I find is very interesting. There is no room for belief in soundly reasoned theory. Belief is something that really should be confined to clerics. It is not. It has got no place whatsoever in economic theory. Yeah. And I mean, we see the result of this uh, all the time. I mean, if you um, listen to any economist at the, you know, at the IMF or the Bank of England or the, um, you know, I can, I can remember, uh, I think it was Kuroda at the Bank of Japan at one of his uh, one of his, uh, uh, you know, uh, press press meetings. Or I think maybe it possibly it was with students where he uh, I think he went into uh, a metaphor with Peter Pan saying that we have to believe that we can uh, the, the idea that you know if you if you stop believing you can fly then you can't fly and he, and he was making this metaphor but as as the governor of a central bank saying we need to believe that we can do this in order for it to work as far as uh, it's a, yeah it's a strange... I mean, you, you, you've you've put it you you've made my point completely um, I, and this is this is this I'm afraid is uh, the problem we have today. I mean, you know, nobody uh, in control of, of the state money actually knows what they're doing. Right. Uh, they believe they can succeed. Um, I mean, for goodness sake, if they didn't believe they could succeed, then uh, yeah, they would be defenestrating themselves out of high tower blocks, right. I would have thought, with regular frequency. But, um, you know, the fact is they believe they can succeed. And we see uh, the sand shifting under them the whole time. When they find that something doesn't work, they have to adjust their beliefs. They don't actually go back and sort of uh, go back to, if you like, sort of really core economic theories, simple economic reasoning. And there is actually um, uh, an explanation for this. If they went back to uh, classical economics and uh, questioned classical economics properly, logically uh, did some uh, uh, a priori reasoning, then 
it would completely destroy the reason for their existence. And you're not going to do that. Of course. It's, you know, I mean, when it comes to beliefs, um, you know, are you going to go to the Archbishop of Canterbury and tell him, look, you've got to sit down and actually look at the facts of life, you know, Darwin and all the rest of it and uh, how we existed and so on. And now tell me, now prove to me that God actually exists. I mean, no, we're not going to do that, are we? No, and he's not hes not going to sit there and, and, and take that um, because he is convinced in his own mind uh, about religion. And he's free to be, do, you know, to be so, uh, just the same as a Muslim is and anybody else. That's absolutely fine. But when it comes to economics, we're talking about uh, taking um, other people's money and redistributing it in a way that, which yeah. they would not naturally choose and trying to justify that that progresses the economy rather than retards it. That's the basic question. Yes. The, how, how was it, though, that, Cain, that did Keynes just, uh, in, in his theories, why was it, why was it Keynes that, was, that, that became gospel? What made Keynes' theories just so palatable to the state and, and you know, national states in, in, in many different countries? Uh, compared to any of his other peers, was it simply because he put the state uh, so set, uh, made, made the state so set, so central, and gave the state so much agency within within the, their economies? I think we probably have to go back slightly before that. Um, Keynes um, basically is a mathematician. He studied maths at university, and uh, economics was something that he took up um, because. Uh, uh, William Stanley Jevons, who was the British economist, who in the 1860s and 70s evolved a theory of marginal prices. Um, uh, he wasn't the only one, by the way, but he was the British one, uh, uh, reckoned that um, he could apply maths, if you like, as a means of analysing prices, future prices, demand. In other words, he saw that mathematics would be central to the further development of economics. Uh, and um, the uh, Keynes, if you like, uh, followed in that tradition. And as a mathematician, he applied maths to economics. And this uh, immediately removes any um, subjectivity uh, out of the subject. So you can see that from someone who is essentially a statist, this is an attractive uh, uh, way of going forward. Mm. Uh, Keynes was very much an establishment man. Uh, and um, consequently, when he uh, became employed by government, um, he fitted in extremely well. He was extremely intelligent. He could argue things um, uh, you know, which, which um, other people wouldn't necessarily accept, but he could get them round to his way of thinking. He appeared to be able to magic up some sort of role for government, um, whether it was in the Indian currency or whatever it might be. Uh, and um, uh, he was, you know, he appeared also technically sound. I mean, if you if you read his tract on monetary reform, there is a lot in there which explains how markets work, you know, which is absolutely fine. So you can see that the man has an intellectual grasp of a subject. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it's basically it's basically maths ra ra rather than economics, but it's very easy to confuse the two. And um, I think I think the other thing is that Keynes um, as an individual 
actually had that sense of duty, which is which used to be imbued in the civil service, uh, and that is that um, you know you you are a civil servant and you are there for the benefit of the country, um, you are the there for the benefit of the state uh, and um, you do everything you can uh, that is possible to uh, further uh, the benefit of the nation and the state and all the rest of it. In other words, a really responsible civil servant. Um, and I think it was that that really gave him this combination of those, all those things that gave him the credibility to be listened to and be promoted, if you like, um, as a serious economist through the Treasury and so on and so forth. And uh, I, I, I think what's interesting, if you read his tract on monetary reform, uh, towards, sorry, not the tract, the, the uh, general theory, towards the end, he makes a very interesting observation, which I think tells us where he is coming from. And that is that he, he wishes for a world uh, which uh, will see the what he called the euthanasia of the rentier. He referred to savers as rentiers. In other words, someone who rents out his money. Yeah. Now, it, if you sort of put it in that context, you can see that there is a sort of evilness about um, uh, taking money, not actually dirtying your hands, and living off the proceeds of lending it to someone else. It was that sort of... Um, uh, if you like, disparagement that, 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 that uh, Keynes latched on. And you have to bear in mind that in the society of his time when he was a youngster or, you know, a young student at Cambridge, we're talking before the First World War, uh, there, was, uh, there were a lot of people who literally lived off their savings and, um, you know, had extremely good lifestyle. They, you know, uh, daddy had made a fortune and all the rest of it. And, um, you know, we got trust funds and, uh, you know, we, we go out and we can get drunk and we can have fun. We can join the Burlingham Club and all the rest of it. So you can see that, um, you know, any um, slightly moralizing person, if you like, uh, would would disparage this. And I think in Keynes's case, it went uh, further to the point where he disparaged all savers that he knew. But at the same time, he was disparaging not just, uh, you know, the sort of the hooray Henrys that he knew uh, as a young man, but also the ordinary people. Yeah. People, people who, who uh, needed to put something aside because um, they knew that one day they might need it for um, medical, uh, you know, expenses. They might need it for uh, a retirement. But, I mean, in those days you worked basically until you reached um, your average life expectancy anyway. Um, but savings were terribly important to everybody. It was actually the way the free markets worked. Um, uh, business had, had access to capital because it would bid up the rate at which it was prepared to pay a saver to encourage the saver to lend. So it's interesting, you know, so many decades on to see that, uh, well, we're, we're savers have had such an awful time uh, thanks to the Keynesian response to the financial crisis uh, we're, with QE and such. And the you know the awful awfully low rates. Do you think? Yeah, I mean, is is this what Keynes wanted? Um, oh, absolutely. He wanted it. Basically, he wanted the euthanasia of the saver. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, but he said even it. In, even in you know, it's it's pretty. It, even you know, uh, apart from the hooray Henrys. I mean, this is mm. you know, this is everybody as a whole. Um, and you know, arguably the uh, the the recovery thanks to these policies has been uh, somewhat somewhat anemic. Um, 
Yeah, and um, what it's what it's actually done um, is it's driven people away from um, the idea that they should save to uh, an, an idea that they should do, do two things. Firstly, when it comes to <coughs> sorry, when it comes to having capital, then they need to put it not into money to be lent to uh, someone else, but they need to put it into property, like the roof over their own head, where you get tax benefits as well. Tax benefits in the sense that it's just about the only thing that isn't taxed. Right. Um, you, in, you know, you go out and you buy shares because they're going up. In other words, it's turned savers into generally into a class of speculators. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, that's not a good thing. No. Um, well, it's not a good thing, given there's a credit cycle which destroys asset prices periodically. <laughs> so, right. oh, and going, uh, and, going back to that, going back to that. How, what, uh, why is it that you think the, uh, the, credit, the grand credit cycle that has been thus continued by all of this central, uh, central bank intervention um, and, and which does destroy asset prices periodically, what, what, do you, what do you see as the signals that we are, we are going to enter or, or we are entering uh, the next downturn of, of this credit cycle when everyone is so leveraged now into the system one way or another um what what are what are the signals that this is about to occur and what do you think will be the the, the effects uh right um basically the signal that this is, is going to happen i think comes from uh rising inflation i mean we're already seeing full employment <clears throat> which basically means that uh any further employment is going to require higher wages particularly where there is a skills shortfall and the second thing is that, uh, you know, demand for um, uh, uh, goods and services and all the rest of it is basically outstripping the ability of an economy to deliver it. Um, and one of the ways in which we get round this in the short term is by importing cheaper goods. Uh, and um, I won't go into the relationship between the twin deficits at this stage, um, but quite simply, if you can buy something uh, which is imported more cheaply than is uh, uh, manufactured here or a service that is provided here, then you go for the cheaper product. And um, th what that does is it, 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 it delays uh, the effect, if you like, the, the, the price effect of inflation, so long as you can do that. Um, one of the things that has, is a new factor is the election of President Trump is leading to um, uh, the imposition of tariffs. After a long period of time of uh, the World Trade Organization reducing the average level of tariffs, we now have America blundering around on the world stage, deciding who it doesn't like for whatever reason, and introducing trade tariffs. And uh, that's going to raise prices uh, for the American consumer. So consequently, I think inflation is going to become a greater problem for um, by inflation, I should say price inflation. Um, if I could insist on definitions, it has to be the inflation of prices or the rise in prices. The loss of purchasing power of the dollar yes. is bound to increase in the, the, the coming months. Now, at the moment, we have something of a currency hiatus, um, which uh, is really, I think, mainly the uh, fault of individual governments, such as um, the actions of uh, the Turkish leadership, the Iranian leadership, the South African leadership, and so on and so on and so on. Um, that crisis um, 
I think uh, is not really the main issue. The main issue is that the dollar has been driven up by speculative flows. The foreigners I have um, managed to establish actually own all the marginal liquidity um, uh, in uh, the American economy in dollars. They own 4.18 trillion at the last count, and that's probably up to about four and a half trillion now, which I would call the marginal liquidity in the banking system. And what? And could you could you uh, could you expand on that on on the importance of marginal liquidity within the banking yeah. system? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the supposition that we're getting in markets at the moment is that the foreigners require dollars, then require them to you know to pay, pay for debt. trade, to pay for, um, you know, money borrowed in dollars and all the rest of it. But in fact, if you look at the figures actually released by the American government, um, uh, you see that's not so. The last figures we actually have was for um, the middle of 2017. And that showed that foreign correspondent banks owned $4.18 trillion out of a total quantity of dollars in circulation of around about 12 trillion. So we're looking at fully one third of the dollars which are owned, uh, um, uh, uh, are owned by foreigners, fully one third of the total dollars in circulation uh, within the banking system, US banking system, are actually owned by foreigners. So the idea that the foreigners don't have access to dollars actually is wrong. Where there is a problem, however, is that you have foreign governments which have got themselves into financial difficulties because, and the Italians are a very good example of this, the Italian government continues to borrow, 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 borrow. The ECB goes in and buys the debt so that they can continue to borrow, borrow, borrow at very, very low rates. And, um, you know, anyone who expects a government in that position to uh, be uh, responsible when it comes to finances, um, no, it doesn't happen. If governments have the facility to borrow, they will borrow. That we have seen. Um, it's only actually the UK government which has been uh, had some sort of progress in reducing uh, the budget deficit. Um, otherwise, budget deficits are all over the place. Now, if you're an LDC, you know, a lesser developed country or an emerging market, as they call them now, uh, then uh, obviously. Um, you know, you borrow from abroad. Uh, but when the rates start going up or when people start thinking, well, I don't know that we want to lend you any more money, we're going to, you know, we want payback rather than rollover, then you end up in difficulties. And that essentially is a government problem. It's not uh, a commercial problem. Um, so the, how did the, I get... the great, the great rise, the great rise in the dollar recently that we've had, and we've also, there's also been a, a large spike in LIBOR, of course, is mm. It, that is something you would attribute that that's something you attribute to speculative flows rather than as a as a result of genuine credit stress due to yep. the fact that it is uh, well because foreign banks own a third of all the, all the US dollars effectively yes that's right um i mean one one of the features about this uh is that um uh, speculators or hedge funds or whatever you like to call them have um uh, have realized that the increase in the amount of debt around basically means that the tipping point at which interest rates will, you know, rise to the point where they tip over the economy, that tipping point is, is somewhat lower than it was last time. Last time, the Fed funds rate went up to something like five, five and a half percent, um, and the whole system fell over. So the question then is, uh, how far does the Fed push up interest rates before the system falls over? Because there's so much more debt now. 
there is so much more debt, exactly. And um, this is in the back of everybody's minds. And this is why I think um, you're seeing not just uh, the, you know, emerging markets, which, sorry, the governments of emerging markets uh, appearing to get into trouble, but also they're selling down commodities. Um, why they're selling down commodities? They think that rising interest rates are going to trigger the next credit crisis. Now, undoubtedly, they're right. But what we're, you know, really the, the room for argument is at what level do dollar interest rates rise before they trigger that crisis? We don't know that until after it has happened. But I think we can get an idea as to uh, uh, where it might be by understanding how the function, you know, how these interest rates actually trigger the crisis. Right. The first thing I would say is that it doesn't trigger the crisis um, by uh, making, um, you know, existing debt look more expensive. Uh, in the sense that, you know, you've got uh, uh, roughly 90 percent um, uh, 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 of government debt, let's say, um, out there in America. You know, the rising interest rates are screwing the American government's um, uh, finances. Yes, of course, that's true, but it's not going to create a crisis. When it comes to consumer debt, the consumer actually is already probably paying something like 20 percent on his credit cards. He is actually relatively insensitive to rises in debt. Um, when it comes to businesses, they will have probably locked in um, uh, interest rates on debt uh, in the same way as most homeowners have probably locked in interest rates on debt where they possibly can. So mm. that's probably not where the crisis arises. Where it does arise, however, is on the cost of working capital. If the cost of working capital rises to the point where a businessman has to look at the returns he gets on his investment and compares it with the cost of running and developing that investment, then there comes a point where he cuts it off. Now, I suspect that it's not at two or two and a half percent, which is the sort of, you know, if you extrapolate the falling peaks of interest rates uh, ever since Volcker <laughs> raised them up to 21 percent back in 1980, um, that line would suggest that we're somewhere around about uh, danger territory now. I would have thought that there's probably a bit more of an in increase in interest rates because of where it applies. It applies on working capital, the cost of working capital. It is that that I think derails the credit crisis. Right. I think that's an important point to make. Oh, that's 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 interesting because uh, there is a lot uh, that you know there are there are arguments made for uh, the when the US government becomes uh, unable, uh, well, when it needs to start uh, taking, uh, you know, issuing even more treasuries than it already is in order to refinance its own debt, because so many of the those treasuries are short dated, and they'll, uh, they'll come due for a rollover soon. Um, and also with a with an over leveraged consumer. So it's interesting that you go to uh, the uh, the cost of working capital as the uh, as, as the trigger for that. But there was something you uh, you mentioned earlier that I wanted to uh, to 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 run run over again, inflation as a you see you 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 described it as a problem, but from my perspective and uh, like from a uh, from a government perspective, it seems like so yeah inflation seems pretty good considering the uh, level level of uh, overall debt in the system and the Federal Reserve I think uh, there have been uh, there were rumors or at least some kind of statement saying that they would allow inflation to run hot or uh, you know over their two percent mandate. 
in order to because you know they don't mind the fact that that would erode all of this credit uh, that is within the system. And you know, if you have high inflation, I mean, that allows the uh, it gives the Federal Reserve uh, the excuse to hike. Uh, again, which they want to do, you know, to, in order to create enough to give themselves enough room to to cut when the next crisis comes. Where, where exactly am I? Uh, where exactly is the problem? You know, other than obviously the fact that the consumer gets wrecked. I, I, I was just sort of giggling slightly at what you were saying about uh, raising the rate to the point where they can then cut it. Right. Now, hold on, hold on a minute. These are the guys who think they've they've conquered the business cycle, or think they're on the way to conquering the business cycle. And now they're, they're uh, if you are right, and I actually think you are right in this, uh, they are admitting that they don't have the control over the situation, right. and they better be prepared for another failure. So anyway, yeah, so yeah, it, it is, it is absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> of course but you mean you have to think because the, because you know the fed has, has hiked into every recession etc uh, okay, you know well, they have they have to think that they're, they're going to have to do it again right I, I i mean the basis behind your question was really um you know what is the um you know the inflation outlook doesn't look quite as bad as uh, i suggested and all the rest of it um the monetary inflation follows uh initially uh, in i'm talking about modern markets now uh, a course which which um, just inflates prices. We see this because um, it's a combination of uh, the central bank lowering interest rates to, in this last case, zero, or in some cases, even negative. And that pushes up the safe haven investments uh, for the financial uh, system, the safe haven investment being government securities. The yield on that drops accordingly. Um, the demand for money from government is actually immaterial in this sense because the rate is 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 fixed uh, and manipulated by the central bank um and you know once confidence begins to return that the world isn't going to fall apart people progressively begin to look at other assets which are priced off the back of uh, us treasuries let's say uh, and so you can see that money starts going into equities um, and it also starts going back into property uh, property is very much a late cycle development i mean having said that you know you have to have um, uh, things sort of stabilizing uh, uh, over a period of time before that begins to come into in, into play um, but uh, you can see that uh, for a while there is a big game to be had making money out of uh, putting excess capital, capital which is created um, by bank credit, um, or if you're a bank, created by uh, the, the the Fed buying worthless assets off you, uh, uh, putting plowing that back into financial assets. And financial assets can also include things like stock buybacks and so on. Yes. So we've had that sort of period, and we can understand that that is a sort of early to middle stage in our credit crisis, credit cycle. As you move on from that, money begins to be spent in the basic economy. Instead of it going entirely to Wall Street, some of it's starts going to Main Street and more and more of it starts going towards Main Street. Now, what's interesting is that uh, governments not only control the money, but they also control the statistics. And if we look uh, particularly at the American uh, statistics, you can see that uh, the CPI is rising by something, I think, around about 3%, roughly, which is, if you like, within shouting distance <laughs> of the Fed's target. Yes which is 2%. And, uh, um, you know, so you can see why they're scrambling a little bit to catch up, but not 
not enough to alarm everybody. Um, on the other hand, if you go to something called the Chapwood Index, um, now this is put together, and it's, it's, I think it's done half yearly, um, and what they do is they take uh, the same products, um, the same staples, basically, in 50 different cities, and I think it's something like, I can't remember the figure, something like 2,000 different products, which, uh, you know, which we're likely to buy, you know, whether it's a sort of a big map, a can of beans, whatever, whatever, whatever. Yeah, consumer stuff. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's sort of pretty basic consumer stuff. And uh, they've recorded year in, year out pretty well since um, uh, the last financial crisis that prices for these products have been rising at roughly 10% per annum. Now, this is a huge, huge gap between um, uh, what the official figures say. The CPI patients. being printed and what it, what it actually yeah. is. Yeah, yeah. And remember that uh, governments, um, you know, where they've uh, uh, tied their payments into the rate of inflation, they've got a vested interest in keeping it as low as possible. Now, that's probably an accusation too far until you realize that there's a chap called John Williams who runs a thing called Shadow Stats. Yes, uh, I'm and, familiar uh, with it. Yeah. yeah, and you know, many of your listeners will have come across um, uh, Shadow Stats. But basically what, what uh, John Williams does is he takes the methodology of computing um, a general price index uh, as it was back in 1980. And he does a second methodology, which is, I think, about 1990 or 1992 or something. Now, the thing that's interesting is that if you strip out all the changes in methods that uh, the Bureau of Economic um, uh, Statistics has uh, brought in uh, since 1980, you, you, you're now looking at an inflation rate, according to uh, uh, John Williams' uh, shadow stats model, which is running at close to 10%. So, you know, the problem we have is that uh, we're asked to believe that the government statistics on inflation uh, and worse than that, the central banks believe government statistics on inflation. Uh, yet there is clear evidence that um, tells us that uh, actually the rate is a lot closer to 10% than 2%. Um, now, I don't know. I mean, none of us track our own personal experience other than we know the money that's sort of going out the door the whole time. Mm. Um, you know, you've got to allow for the fact that uh, what we buy today we didn't buy yesterday and what we buy tomorrow will probably presumably be something completely different so there is actually no such thing as a general price level but having said that my own personal experience and i'd be interested in yours Boas, is that prices have been rising somewhat faster than the bank of england says it is yeah certainly certainly there's yeah. a there, there's a great a uh, there's a great website I, well, I think it's a website just dedicated to it uh, which is just called the the freddo index and it just uh, of course just charts the price of uh, the the small small chocolate uh, freddo frogs uh, over time and of course these uh, these are certainly not appreciating at uh, you know 2% per year at all uh, there's still people who remember 10p freddos and you know these days they're like 25p and whatnot um, but yeah yeah from the from the consumer from the perishable goods uh, perspective you know things are things are certainly accelerating at a, at a higher at a higher price it's interesting then when uh, when you when you do take into you know what what inflation was thought of you know maybe you know two decades ago two decades ago three decades ago uh, is actually you know but if you if you just took those saying the whoever was in the bureau then and you put them in now without an agenda to uh, to to get to have inflation artificially low that uh, you know the, these things would be the inflation would be printed as as much higher, and what the what the overall effect of all, all that would be, because just the fact that inflation is printed as being higher would have uh, 
would have a, a huge, huge impact, uh, certainly from the speculative side, on, on the prices of all, all sorts of other things. Um, uh, in terms of uh, absolutely, in terms Sorry, of gone. the central bank uh, response to that, do you do you think? Uh, well, I get they're, they're sort of uh, obligated to believe the official inflation uh, print, uh, but do you, do you think they they do know that it's you know that there is this uh, you know because you, you get it's not just normal just print inflation as well, but there's been the whole shrinkflation phenomena and all that. Um, do you think uh, do you think they they are aware of this and they're 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 fine with that going on? Simply because it erodes, uh, it is further erosion. I think of probably the not. Um, yeah, yeah. The reason I say probably <clears throat> probably not is come comes back to this question really between sound reason theory and belief. If you believe something, then it automatically allows you not to question things, and I think that's roughly where they are. Um, you know, you've got the office in our country. We've got the office of budget responsibility, staffed by all sorts of highly qualified professionals. Um, you assume that what they say is correct. Mm, mm. I think uh, it, 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 you know, it goes no further than that. Um, I mean, you know, I've, I've also um, sort of heard of instances in, in uh, America where the Fed, which employs an enormous number of economists, um, they, they, they actually had an Austrian economist do a presentation to them. Um, or oh, this was a select group, I think, of some some sort. I don't think that these we're not talking about policymakers or anything like that, but we're talking about someone in some you know sort of hidden department. Right. And uh, you know the twenty or thirty economists who attend this had never heard of Austrian economics, um, and uh, you know we're absolutely sort of you know thought. I, you know, I can't believe this. It's a complete alien, <laughs> alien idea. Alien, exactly. Yeah. That's the word. A alien. land of pure struggling. imagination, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, we're, we're having our lives run for us by people who actually don't understand basic economics. And furthermore, the statistics are self-serving. Now, uh, this can't continue forever. Now, at some stage in the cycle, you find that the central bank begins to lose control over... Uh, its management of money. And um, the reason for this is that uh, the what happens is that, that, that free markets begin to not accept the story of the central bank anymore. And it starts setting the prices. People will realize that um, the purchasing power of their money is falling and they're not being compensated in any way for that fall in purchasing power of their money, or they're not being compensated enough. So they will demand more. So really what I'm saying is coming back to you know, the original topic, and that is you know, where we are in this cycle. Um, I think we're getting to the stage now where people are beginning to realize that to be paid 0.1% on a bank deposit is actually a complete waste of time. Um, and what they are now doing, I think, is that the market as a whole is beginning to demand or will shortly begin to demand a higher uh, rate of interest on any deposits uh, that are left in the banks. And remember, the amount of deposits in the banks following all that QE, following the expansion of bank credit since the last Lehman crisis, is now actually um, at an all-time record. It is, if you like, the other side of a lot of the debt that's being created. Um, because, you know, you get deposits, debt gets created, deposits uh, result. So, um, uh, you know, I think the market itself will begin to force the central banks, if you like, to accept that interest rates should be raised. They're beginning to do that now. 
And the, there is another interesting point, actually, for sovereign debt on this one. The Italians in particular uh, have, uh, um, uh, if you like, uh, existed extremely well on the basis of the ECB buying up uh, um, uh, Italian government debt and effectively keeping the, uh, the, the interest that the Italian government has to pay extremely low. Now, what if... Um, the Italian government decides it's going to go out of the euro or uh, or the ECB. Actually, it's a lot more likely the ECB has to cut its, um, uh, uh, you know, its monthly um, uh, QE, which, yeah. you know, at the moment, I think it's something like 60 billion. They're going to cut it to 30 billion and then they're going to do away with it and all the rest of it. They've got to do that. It means that the buyers, uh, they are the one buyer, if you like, that is prepared to pay um, or, or prepared to receive something like one and a half percent over um, uh, uh, what they would get on on German debt, which is basically zero. Yeah. Um, if they withdraw from the market, what price Italian debt? I mean, the answer basically is that the Italians are going to end up in a crisis very, very rapidly. So you can see that these dynamics begin to come in. And it's a cycle which is essentially created by the actions of the central banks at an earlier stage. Now, we don't know quite what form the crisis will take or what will actually trigger the crisis, whether it's something like um, uh, the, the you know the Italian debt situation as the ECB withdraws, <clears throat> whether it's uh, the global economy is sort of picking up to the extent that the demand for commodities starts driving up their prices and so on and so forth, uh, or whether it is Trump's policies uh, of on the one hand uh, um, uh, demanding you know if you like imposing tariffs on his own people uh, to try and discourage imports, and at the same time accelerating. Uh, government spending without, you know, and cutting taxes so that uh, the budget deficits are going to be uh, at least a trillion every year after this uh, for the foreseeable future. Right. Um, you know, there are all these combinations which basically lead to higher prices, yet more money printing um, to to uh, pay for it one way and another. And at some stage, the markets are going to rumble it. And I think that we're getting quite late in this process. Uh, this is obviously a matter of opinion. So um, call it a belief if you like. I can't give uh, a sound economic reason as to the, you know, quite the why and when the whole thing is going to fall over. There are so many things that can go wrong. But the one thing I do know is that the central banks can control everything except the credit crisis which they have created. Right, right. In terms of in terms of yeah, of, uh, of of what of what will be the the next spark uh, uh, to to really uh, set all the all the all the um, the matchsticks alight. It's uh, from our perspective at South Bank, it's certainly uh, the Italian issue. Uh, just uh, all of the uh, the events set to set to unfold in October, uh, where it seems to be quite a. Uh, so it seems to be quite a quite a minefield but i'm afraid alistair we have we have used up all our time today hopefully we can have you on again because this has been a, a fascinating uh, conversation it, it would be would be great to have you on to, to discuss this further now uh, before we leave uh, do do tell our listeners where they can read more of your work and hear more of your insight yes sure i write for gold money and um 
on every Thursday, sort of, I suppose, afternoon, New York time. It's published on the Gold Money uh, website uh, under the, res the research menu. And under that, you've got insights. Um, and uh, so that's every Thursday. <clears throat> I also uh, produce a market report for Gold Money, which is on Friday. And that, again, is published in the afternoon. Um, and the market report is really concentrates on uh, precious metals. And I try and get away from, uh, if you like, technical analysis as such, which uh, everybody else seems to be doing. And uh, um, I, I think actually it's only a partial answer, if an answer at all. <clears throat> and I try and look at, uh, um, you know, the market factors uh, in particular, uh, you know, what's actually going on mainly in COMEX, I have to say, because that is where the price is controlled for precious metals. Uh, and uh, also I look at uh, some of the uh, medium-term geopolitical issues which could have an effect um, and therefore be relevant to anyone reading a report with an idea as to whether they should be buying or selling or whatever. Right, right. Thank you, Alistair, very much for, for joining me. That was my pleasure, Boaz. And thank you for listening to another episode of The Gold Podcast. Uh, that was uh, that was Alistair McLeod of Gold Money. And uh, I am Boaz Shoshan. I'm an editor at South Bank Research. It has been, it has been great to, to do another one of these. Uh, if, you'd like to, if you'd like to hear more of what, uh, what we do, do go on to capitalandconflict.com, uh, where my, myself and my colleague Nick Hubble write Capital and Conflict. Uh, we, have, uh, we, are, we are big fans of gold, as, I, as I'm sure you already know, as this is called The Gold Podcast. But uh, please tune in uh, next time, and uh, hopefully we'll have Alistair on again. Thank you very much for listening.